Turn with me in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. Um, last week we started our series through the book of Jonah and we saw God give Jonah a direct mission. He, he had a direct plan for him, had a direct mission for him to accomplish, and rather than listening and obeying to the Lord, uh, to the Lord, uh, listening to the Lord and obeying the Lord, um, he changes direction. He doesn't follow through. He runs from God's direction. If you remember in Jonah chapter 1 verse 3, this is what happened. But Jonah rose and he fled from Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish and he paid the fare and went down into it, into the ship to run from the presence of the Lord. So this is what he did. Rather than listening to God, he ran from God. And I think a lot of us can relate to that. We've been in these moments where that's happened. And oftentimes, um, as we do this exact same thing, we try to run and hide from God. And sadly, we miss. And here's, the, here's what happens when you and I try to run from the Lord. We miss out on the blessings from God in our lives. But nevertheless, God's sovereignty, God's control, God's kingship is all over the things of our lives. Even our calling, even when we try to run from what God's doing in our lives, He's mighty enough, He's sovereign enough, He's powerful enough, His mighty hand of providence is all over you and I. Every single one of us. And sometimes the, the providential hand of God can come down pretty hard. Like it, Discipline he can he'll bring to us. Like he's, his providential hand can come in pretty swift and pretty quickly. Um, the fact is that that providential hand is there for your own good. How many of you guys? I remember when I was a kid, my dad would say things. When I would get let's let's just let's take a survey. How many of y'all were spanked as kids? How many of y'all were not spanked? Okay. I'm just going to say that's what's wrong with you if you didn't get spanked. So uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but the fact of the matter is, my dad would tell me right before, he would, right before he would spank me, he would say, Son, I do this for your own good because I love you. I was like, wait, liar? If you love me, you'd let me go, right? That's what I thought as a small child, as my dad would take his belt off and be like, I do this because I love you. Like, yeah, dad, you're lying. No, you don't. But as I've gotten older, I realized, man, it was because he, he was trying to guide me and shape me and mold me into, his, into the image that I was supposed to be in. He was trying to show me that, listen, young men have to have discipline. You've got to have discipline in your life. And, and um, God's got to have discipline for those that are his children. It reminds me of Hebrews chapter 12. Um, says verse 6 through 9 for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves he chastens every son whom he receives it is for discipline that you have endured God is treating you as sons 
For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? Like, so in other words, who, what, like, are you, are you even his son if he doesn't discipline you? Listen to me, parents. Parents who refuse to discipline their children don't really love or care for their children. Regardless of what they might say, they do not love their children. What they actually love are themselves and their own comfort. And it's that and listen, that comfort's temporary. If you don't discipline your kids when they're little, they're going to raise hell when they're older. And they're going to be a problem later. Ask me how I know. I've, I've seen it throughout my entire life where young folks that I grew up with who their parents didn't want to discipline them because they loved them are now in and out of jail, dealing with drugs, dealing with alcohol, doing all these things that they should. Why? Because their parents were lazy. Their, their parents were lazy. God's given the prescription in the text. If you love your children, you're going to discipline them. You're going to discipline the way your heavenly father does. God is so much, he is, he's so much better as a father, and he's not going to allow his children to act up. He's going to discipline the scripture. What the scripture says, he's going to discipline those he loves. So listen, don't, don't be bragging around saying, hey, you know what? God really doesn't. God really doesn't, I don't experience God's discipline in my life. I, I really don't experience that discipline. Because if you see, there's no, if there's no active discipline in your life, that means there's something extremely worrisome that's going on in your heart and your life. Verse 8 tells us what that is in Hebrews chapter 12. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate child and not a son. So, in other words, if, you're, if there's no conviction over your sin, if there's no rebuke over your sinful actions from the Lord, it means that you are a fatherless child. Growing up with a father and seeing those um, who did not have a father, I can understand the vast difference there is between having a dad and not having a dad. Our, our culture tries to tell women that they, they don't need a man to, to, to raise kids. You don't, need no, you don't need no man. That's a terminology I've heard often in circles that I've ministered in. I've heard women say things like that. I don't need no man to tell me what to do. I, ain't no, I don't need no man to help me raise that kid. I don't need no man. That's what our culture tries to tell women that men are not necessary for raising a well-rounded well child. And I, as well as God's word, fully disagree with that statement. National Research I'm sorry, national research when it comes to salvation, when it comes to those that come give their hearts to the Lord, listen to these stats. If a child is reached for the Lord, 3.7% of the time, the family comes in. If the child is reached. 
If the mother is reached with the gospel, 17% of the time, the family will also follow. Now listen to this. If the father is reached with the gospel, 93% of the time, the family will follow in that same direction. If men grow in their love for Christ, the rest of the family will grow in their love for Christ as well. If you, if you take a full family unit, it, it, it takes, I'm sorry, it takes a full family unit. I don't want to discount that mothers are necessary. We talked about that on Mother's Day. Mothers are necessary. But I'm telling you, it is a full family unit that is needed to foster and grow spiritually. We can need a godly mother and a godly father. But the stats are, like I'm just reading research. This is evidence. 93% of the time, the family is saved and follows suit when men are saved. Why? Because men are built by God to be the leader. Men are built by God to, to cultivate and grow and build. And that means to build out in the home. Now you say, Caleb, that's not always the case. I, it said, I said 93%. I didn't say 100%. I know that there's weird cases. But man, 93% is a whole lot bigger than 17. A whole lot bigger than 37 but what are we doing as, as churches? Man, we're throwing all of our resources into ministering to the children and to the women. What's the group that's most neglected? Men. Men. I mean, we need to grow our men spiritually. Because if we grow our men spiritually and they're spiritually healthy, guess what? They're going to shepherd their flock at their house. And I'm telling you, Growing up in the Lord starts at the house, not church. This is just an extra vitamin that we have. You should be daily consuming the things of God in your home. Daily. Like you just should. It takes a full family unit to, a, uh, and the, listen, the attack that we see in our world today it's on the family. We're trying to redefine, just like we've redefined everything else in the world. I'm not really a man. I'm a woman. I'm not really a woman. I'm a man. We've tried to redefine, I don't know how many genders we've got now, but we're trying to redefine what a family is. God specifically laid out, this is what a family is. One man, one woman, go make babies. Subdue the earth. Go. That's the idea of a family. That, that's it. And so the attack from Satan himself is that if I could get the fathers out of the home, then, then I can take out the rest of the family. And look, if you look at the statistics, fatherless homes have so much more issues when it comes to crime, poverty, you name it. A fatherless home is a desperately horrible home. Now, does my heart go out to single mothers? Absolutely. Because the father was a, was a bum? My, my heart goes out to you. But the idea here is that the enemy wants to destroy the family. Because if he could destroy the family, then he could destroy the nation. Now look at verse 9 of Hebrews 12. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us. And we represent we respected them shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirit 
that lives inside of us. There's a promise here. But God's given us a, a, a prescription. Listen, earthly fathers are to be a shadow and type and figure of our heavenly father. Not, we don't do it perfectly. Listen, I got kids in the room. I mess up often as a dad. Any other dads in the room messed up? Let's go. This is a safe place to say I've messed up because guess what? Your pastor's messed up. Your pastor's not perfect. I'm not a perfect dad. I've wounded my children. Guess what, though? I'm quick to try to find forgiveness, try to reconcile, try to work that out, right? There, and there's, there's this idea that God's given us earthly fathers to discipline us and we respect them. Listen, I love that my dad took time to discipline me. I didn't always like it as a kid, but as I got older, I understood why he disciplined me. He did love me. He wanted to see me on the straight and narrow. He wanted to see me be a well-rounded man that was able to take care of a wife and children as well. It, listen, I know the psychology of our day is out of control. Instead of, if little Throckmorton is trying to saw the leg off of the kitchen table... Psychology says, give him a bigger saw and let him do what he wants. No. If I tried to saw the leg off my kitchen table, my dad would have come untrained on me. Like, you're not, boy, get up. No, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. And listen, there's a promise from the Lord in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, that if one of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. That is the only command that has a promise connected to it. Did you know that? The promise is that if you honor your father and your mother, you're going to live long and have a prosperous life. That's the promise from the Lord. The, the conviction of the Lord, listen, the conviction of the Lord, the discipline of the Lord is a gift. It is not something that should be shunned. It is not something that should be like, oh my gosh, God's being mean to me. He's just an ogre. No, he's not. The conviction of the Lord on his children is a gift. That God is taking time out of his schedule to call you on your sin and call you to repent of your sin is a telltale sign that you belong to Christ. Why? Because Hebrews chapter 12 says that God disciplines, he convicts and disciplines those he loves. That means that God loves you. He doesn't want to leave you. He loves you so much that he doesn't want to leave you in your sinful state. He wants to call you out of that sinful state and to put you in a position where you're his son, where you're his daughter. Like that is, that's the calling from the scriptures. The conviction of the Lord on his children is actually a gift. So man, if God's disciplining you over your sin, take comfort in that. Because if God's not disciplining you now, you're going to pay for that later in eternity. Thank the Lord that he has not left you alone in your sin. That in and of itself, that is a blessing that God has not left you alone in your sin. It, it, that is a beautiful gift. The Lord does not, now listen, and that's the same, the Lord doesn't allow Jonah to stay where he is in his disobedience. The Lord does not allow Jonah to get away with his sin. He pursues him in the midst of his sin. And if the Lord is pursuing you in the midst of your sin, that is a good sign that he loves you. 
We saw last week as he got thrown out of a boat. Remember, Jonah was in the boat. Massive storm. He's disobeyed God because God gave him a directive, said, hey, go, go to Nineveh. And he's like, nah, I'm, gonna go, I'm not going to go to Nineveh. I'm going to go to Tarshish. And I'm going to go do what I want. God said, oh, yeah, I'm going to throw a storm at you that you've never seen. Caused all kinds of problems. He's in this boat. They ends up drawing the short straw on the lottery. Throws him out. They th- they're like, all right, we're going to throw him out of the boat. They throw him out of the boat. And immediately... The storm ceases. Could you imagine? The people in the boat freaked out and they all got saved because they're like, wow, this is the God who rules the seas and the earth. And they give homage to to Jehovah and they honor him and they submit their lives to him. These men get saved in the boat because they're like, wow, this is a different deal. The Lord does not allow Jonah to get away. He instructs this large fish to come out of nowhere and swallow up Jonah. And I know that, like I said last week, there are those that believe that that's a fairy tale. There's like, there's no way that God could do that. Why couldn't God do that? God can do whatever he wants. Like God could have teleported him. He could have beamed me up, Scotty. He could have. But he uses what he has in front of you. Like fish, you're a big fish. Go. There's going to be a guy that's going to jump out of a boat. You're going to see some legs dangling in the water. Get him. puts him in swallows Jonah up and for three days and three nights we see what happens next let's pick it up in chapter 2 of Jonah so go back if you got your Bibles there go to Jonah 2 so now Jonah doesn't have any distractions he's not in a boat anymore he's in the belly of a whale or not a whale sorry a fish what happens when he's what happens when you and I get in the midst of trouble, real trouble that we can't get out of? Chapter two. Then Jonah prayed. Was Jonah praying beforehand? Was Jonah praying when he was wait when he heard from the Lord? Was he praying? Nope. He was running. But now he's at the end of his rope, he's at the end of all problems. Everything's going just south quickly. What happens? Jonah prayed to the Lord. His God. So there we go. We know that he belongs to God. He is a child of God. God is his father. So he's in the belly of the fish and he's praying. And what does he say? I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas and the floods surrounded me all your waves and all your billows passed over me he acknowledges here all the distractions are gone everything's removed from Jonah's life and now he's able to focus on now what he has currently at hand there's nothing distracting him There's nothing to get him focused on something else. He's got one singular focus. All the networking has been removed. All the connections are gone. And the only has God alone to have a conversation with. and, And here's the bottom line. That's all you really have anyways. Your networking, your connections, your stuff. That doesn't mean anything if you don't have God in the midst of it. So he's 
all alone in the belly of a fish with God and God alone. And what does he do? He acknowledges that he is on the brink of death and that God is there with him in the midst of this moment. I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And what happened? And listen, that's a good thing. He cries out to the Lord and the Lord answers him. So that's a good thing that God answered his prayer. And then he talks about what? You, you rescued me out of the belly of Sheol. Sheol is a, is, he's right at the steps of hell. Sheol is another terminology for hell. I cried and you heard my voice. In verse 3, we, we see he understands that what, he, what has happened to him, that he's in his, the circumstance that he's in, being swallowed by this great fish, is actually a judgment from God for his defiance. And he owns his sin. He repents of his sin, owns his sin, talks about this. He says, for you cast me out in the, into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the, the flood swor- surrounded me. And all your waves and billows, they passed over me. Then verse 4, then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Think about this. He's now, he's, thinking, he's like, God, you've, you've driven me away from your sight. You've cast me out of your presence. This is a temporary casting out of his presence. Yet, I shall look again upon your holy temple. So he said, listen, it's rough, but there's hope. There's there's disappointment, but there's hope. Verse 4, he acknowledges that God has temporarily pushed him out of his presence or out of his good graces. This was something that, that happened to David often. He spoke about this often. God, don't, don't push me out of your presence. Psalms 51.11 Cast me not away from your presence. Take, me, take not your Holy Spirit from me. This is after his adultery and murder. David commits adultery and murder. And then he prays to the Lord and says, God, please don't, don't cast me from your presence. Like I said last week, I... I'm more interested in being known by God and being in God's presence than I am being used by Him. If I Listen, hear me. If I'm known by God, if you're known by God, you'll be used by God. There's oftentimes things in the Bible God uses people often, but they don't know Him. Pharaoh? Pharaoh was used by God immensely. But God and, and Pharaoh didn't know each other. God did not love Pharaoh, but he used Pharaoh. I want to be known by God more than I want to be used by God. My heart level desire is to be in the presence of God and enjoy him for all eternity. That's, that's my desire. That's my goal is that I would be known by God and that I would be pursued by him and that I would enjoy his presence forever. That's, and that, listen, honestly, that's what all Christians should want. That's what you should want as a believer is that you should want to be in God's presence. Amen? Verse 5 tells us there in Jonah, the waters closed over me to my life, the deep surrounds me. Weeds are wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me 
You brought me up my life out of the pit. Oh, Lord, my God. When my life was failing away, fainting away, failing away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Man, I, wow. Verse 5 through 7 describes his, like his whole person, both, both physically and spiritually, have all been taken to a place that he is all he's thinking about, all he's pondering about in this, this moment in the belly of the fish is, God, how do I, how do I get back to you? I, I, I've been pushed out. I've been sinful. I've disobeyed. I've done things that are horrible. Listen, you may have done some horrible things in your life. But take comfort. There's hope for you here today. Why? Because if God can forgive things like this, He can forgive you. If He can forgive guys like David, Paul, all the things, all these men in the Scripture who are examples of what we shouldn't do, there's hope for you. He's brought up out of the belly of the fish. Man, I just, I love this. Remember, you remember back in verse 4? He said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet shall I again look upon your holy temple. Verse 7 is the restoration of Jonah. So verse 4, he's like, listen, I've been pressed out, I've been pushed out, but God, I want to be back in your holy temple. What's verse 7? When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. There is hope for those who come to Christ with a repentant heart. With a humbled, repentant heart, you have the opportunity to find grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Verse, seven, or verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope in steadfast love. Listen, if you're putting all your chips in on something that is, well, if I, just, if I can just get networked into the right job, if I can get, just get to the right place um, socially, if I can just get the right house, if I can just get the right job, then I'm in. That's my hope. You're forsaking steadfast love. That's an idol. If you're worshiping things that are not of God, if you're worshiping something that is not Jehovah, you are forsaking steadfast love. Jonah finds himself in the same place as the sailors in chapter 1. Now remember at the end of chapter 1, those sailors paid homage. Verse 16, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows to the Lord. So they sacrifice, worship, and make vows to the Lord. This is the same exact thing that happens to Jonah. He finds himself in the same exact place. He's now giving out a vow to the Lord, and he's repenting of his sins, and he is humbling himself before the mighty hand of God. And he has, like, he's been doing this for three days. So he's in the belly of the, of the fish for three days. Three nights. And all he's done for this three days and three nights is cried out to the Lord. God, save me. God, I was wrong. God, forgive me. Listen, you may be in the belly of a whale. Metaphorically, nobody in here has ever been in the belly of a fish. But you may be going through some deep stuff. And that may be what is necessary to get you where you need to be with God. 
Don't look at the hardships of your life as hardships. Look at them as a potential blessing that, are, that is bringing you to a place with a right, to, a, to a right relationship with the God of the universe. Now notice, how long was he in the belly of the fish? Three days. Three is the number that references perfect harmony and completeness in the Bible. Jonah's restoration here is complete. He's completely restored by the Lord. God is about to set him back on the path that he was supposed to be on the whole time. Now listen, what God could have done was when Jonah said, you know what? When God said, listen, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And Jonah said, "Uh, no, I'm going to Tarshish. You know what God could have done? Well, Jonah wasn't there. Where's Chuck? I'll use Chuck. Chuck, you're there. You go. That's what he could have done. But what does he do? He loves Jonah enough to pursue him, even in the midst of his disobedience. God still uses our disobedience for his glory. And he still, if if you're his child, he's going to pursue you. You're not going to get away with it. He pursues Jonah, sets him back, forgives him, puts him back in a right relationship, gives him perfect and complete restoration, and God sets him on the path that he was supposed to be on the whole time. The whole time. He ends up, ends his prayer with this vow to the Lord in verse 10. He, he makes this vow to the Lord. I will, what, verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. And what I have vowed, I will pay salvation belongs to the Lord. And so he has this beautiful picture of God, I was wrong, but God, I know you could fix this. I'm making a vow to you that I'm going to I'm going to do what you've done you've called me to do. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to pursue you with a thankful heart. I will sacrifice to you. I will do what you've called me to do. And what I have vowed, I will pay. I will do. God's salvation belongs to you. You're to be praised. You're to be glorified, God. That's what it is. That's it. He ends the prayer with a vow to the Lord. And then in verse 10, it happens. And the Lord spoke to the fish. And he vomits Jonah up onto dry land. What a trip. I've never been vomited out of a fish. But I can tell you right now, it put me in a whole new perspective. Three days in the belly of a fish, and then all of a sudden, bleh, here I am on the ground. Whoa. Whoa. I'm on the ground. I'm not in the, I'm not in the ocean anymore. There's, is that, wow, that's sand. Oh, sand. I've missed you, sand. Bessie, I bet he wasn't complaining about the weather. I bet he wasn't complaining about his circumstances. Whew. And then chapter 3 kicks off. Then the word of the Lord came again to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise. So, we're, like, it's on repeat. He's like, All right, we're going to try this again. You ever done that with your kids? You tell them to do something, they don't do it, and then you discipline, and then they set them up again. Like, All right, let's try that again, buddy. You ready? Let's try this one more time. God is a good father here. He says, Okay, son. 
You didn't do it the right the first time. I'm, I'm setting you up. Here we go. Got you set up on dry land again. Got your, you got your legs back underneath you. Good deal. Get up. Get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I am going to give you. And this time, things are different. Jonah didn't go, you know what? No, I'm not going, Lord. Jonah didn't say I'm not going. What does Jonah do? Jonah, verse 3 of chapter 3, he arises, he gets up, and he goes to Nineveh according to the word of God. According to what God tells him to do, he does it. God didn't, listen, God didn't have to do this with Jonah. But God chose to be gracious, just like he's choosing to be gracious to you today. Like, listen, none of us deserve the good graces of the Lord Jesus Christ. None of us in this room deserve God's mercy. None of us in this room deserve God's favor. But man, he lets you get up this morning, didn't he? Did you get up and enjoy a cup of coffee? And that's a gift from the Lord. Did you get, get to see, open your eye? You know, many people don't, they woke up this morning and they, like, it's still dark, it's still, it's still blinding. You got to wake up and see. You got to wake up and experience God all around you. He didn't have to do that. We should be in awe of how good and gracious God has been to us. Especially when we don't listen to him. How many times has God, through his word, said, this is what I want you to do, and you ignore it? The result is that we should, this, this, our, God being good to you should cause in you a desire to want to obey him, pursue him more, and submit your life to him in repentance. That's what it should cause. That God's good to you. That God's given you life. Man, I can't think of anything better than to see and know that God is doing a work in our hearts and our minds and our lives. Oh, it's so good. It's such a gracious and beautiful thing. Amen?